Section 3 of Folklore and Legends, English. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by phone. Folklore and Legends, English, by Charles John Tibbets. A Dissertation on Fairies, Part 2. Fairies, they tell you, have frequently been heard and seen. Nay, that there are some living who were stolen away by them, and confined seven years. According to the description they give who pretend to have seen them, they are in the shape of men, exceeding little. They are always clad in green, and frequent the woods and fields. When they make cakes, which is a work they have been often heard at, they are very noisy, and when they have done, they are full of mirth and pastime. But generally they dance in moonlight when mortals are asleep and not capable of seeing them, as may be observed on the following morn, their dancing places being very distinguishable. For as they dance hand in hand, and so make a circle in their dance, so next day there will be seen rings and circles on the grass. Born's Antiquatis Fugares, Newcastle, 1725, 8th volume, page 82. These circles are thus described by Brown, the author of Britannia's Pastorals. A pleasant mead, where fairies often did their measures treed, which in the meadows made such circles green, as if with garlands it had crowned been. Within one of these round was to be seen a hillock rise, where oft the fairy queen, at twilight sit, and did command her elves, to pinch those maids that had not swept their shelves, and further, if by maiden's oversight, within doors water were not brought at night, or if they spread no table, said no bread, they should have nips from toe unto the head, and for the maid that had performed each thing, she in the water-pill bad leave a ring. The same poet, in a chapiard's pipe, having inserted Hockleaf's tale of Jonathan's, and conceiving a strange unnatural affection for that stupid fellow, describes him as a great favourite of the fairies, alleging that Many times he hath be seen with the fairies on the green, and to them his pipe did sound, while they danced in a round. Mickle solace would they make him, and at midnight often wake him, and convey him from his room to a field of yellow broom, or into the meadows where mints perfumed the gentle air, and where the flora spends her treasure, there they would begin their measure. If it chanced night's sable shrouds, muffled Cynthia up in clouds, safely home they then would see him, and from brakes and quagmires free him. The fairies were exceedingly diminutive, but, it must be confessed, we shall not readily find their real dimensions. They were small enough, however, if we may believe one of Queen Titania's maids of honour, to conceal themselves in acorn shells. Speaking of a difference between the king and queen, she says, But they do square, that all the elves for fear, creep into acorn cups and hide them there. They uniformly and constantly wore green vests, unless when they had some reason for changing their dress. Of this circumstance we meet with many proofs. Thus, in the Merry Wives of Windsor, like urchins, oofs, and fairies green. In fact, we meet with them of all colours, as in the same play, 
Fairies black, grey, green and white. That white, on occasion, was the dress of a female, we learn from Reginald Scott. He gives a charm to go invisible by means of these three sisters of fairies, Milia, Achilia, Sibylia. I charge you that you do appear before me visible, in form and shape of fair women, in white vestures, and to bring with you to me the ring of invisibility, by the which I may go invisible at mine own will and pleasure, and that in all hours and minutes. It was fatal, if you may believe Shakespeare, to speak of a fairy. Falstaff, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, is made to say, They are fairies. He that speaks to them shall die. They were accustomed to enrich their favourites, as we learn from the clown in A Winter's Tale. It was told me I should be rich by the fairies. They delighted in neatness, could not endure sluts, and even hated fibsters, tell-tales, and their vultures of secrets, whom they would slyly and severely be pinched when they little expected it. They were as generous and benevolent, on the contrary, to young women of a different description, procuring them the sweetest sleep, the pleasantest dreams, and, on their departure in the morning, always slipping a tester in their shoe. They are supposed by some to have been malignant, but this, it may be, was mere calumny, as being utterly inconsistent with their general character, which was singularly innocent and amiable. Imogen, in Shakespeare's Cymbeline, prays on going to sleep, From fairies and the tempters of night, guard me, beseech you. It must have been the incubus she was so afraid of. Hamlet, too, notices this imputed malignity of the fairies. Then no planets strike, no fairy takes, nor witch has power to charm. Thus, also, in the comedy of errors, a fiend, a fairy, pitiless and rough. They were amazingly expeditious in their journeys. Puck, or Robin Goodfellow, answers Oberon, who was about to send him on a secret expedition, I'll put a girdle round about the earth in forty minutes. Again, the same goblin addresses him thus. Fairy king, attend and mark, I do hear the morning lark. Then, my queen, in silent sand, trip we after the night shade. We, the globe, can compass soon, swifter than the wandering moon. In another place, Puck says, my fairy lord, this must be done in haste, for night's swift dragons get the clouds full fast, and yonder shines Aurora's harbinger, at whose approach ghosts, wandering here and there, troop home to churchyards, etc. To which Oberon replies, But we are spirits of another sort. I with the morning's love have oft made sport, and, like a forester, the groves may tread, even till the eastern gate, all fiery red, opening on Neptune with fair blessed beams, turns into yellow gold his salt green streams. Compare, likewise, what Robin himself says on this subject in the old song of his exploits. They never ate. But that it eats our victuals, I should think, here were a fairy, says Valerius at the first sight of Imogen as Fidele. They were humanely attentive to the youthful dead, 
Thus Guderius at the funeral of the above lady, with female fairies will his tomb be haunted. Or, as in the pathetic dirge of Collins on the same occasion, No withered witch shall here be seen, no goblins lead their nightly crew. The female fae shall haunt the green, and dress the grave with pearly dew. This amiable quality is, likewise, thus beautifully alluded to by the same poet. By fairy hands their knell is rung, by forms unseen their dirge is sung. Their employment is thus charmingly represented by Shakespeare in the Address of Prospero. Ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, and ye that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune and do fly him when he comes back, you demi-puppets that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make, whereof the you not bites, and you, whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms, that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew. In the midsummer night's dream, the queen, Titania, being desirous to take a nap, says to her female attendants, Come, now a roundel, and a fairy song. Then, for the third part of a minute hence, some to kill cankers in the musk rosebuds, some war with rear mice for their leathern wings, to make my small elves coats, and some keep back the clamorous owl that nightly hoots and wonders at our crane spirits, Sing me now asleep, then to your offices, and let me rest. Milton gives a most beautiful and accurate description of the little green coast of his native soil, than which nothing can be more happily or justly expressed. He had certainly seen them, in this situation, with the poet's eye. Fairy elves, whose midnight revels by a forest side, or fountain some belated peasant sees, or dreams he sees, while overhead the moon sits arbitress, and nearer to the earth wills her pale course. They, on their mirth and dance, intent, with jocund music charm his ear, at once, with joy and fear, his heart rebounds. The impression they made upon his imagination in early life appears from his vacation exercise at the age of nineteen. Good luck befriend thee, son, for at thy birth the fairy ladies danced upon the hearth. The drowsy nurse had sworn she did them spy, come tripping to the room where thou didst lie, and, sweetly singing round about thy bed, strew all their blessings on thy sleeping head. L'Abbé Bourdelon, in his ridiculous extravagances of Monsieur Ouflet, describes the fairies of which, he says, Grandmothers and nurses tell so many tales to children. These fairies, adds he, I mean, who are affirmed to be blind at home and very clear-sighted abroad, who dance in the moonshine when they have nothing else to do, who steal shepherds and children to carry them up to their caves, etc. English translation, page 190. The fairies have already called themselves spirits, ghosts, or shadows, and consequently they never died, a position, at the same time, of which there is every kind of proof that a fact can require. The reviser of Johnson and Stephen's edition of Shakespeare, in 1785, makes a ridiculous reference to the allegories of Spencer, and a palpably false one to Tickle's Kensington Gardens, which he affirms will show that the opinion of fairies dying prevailed in the last century. 
whereas, in fact, it is found, on the slightest glance into the poem, to maintain the direct reverse. Meanwhile, sad Kenna, loath to quit the grove, hung o'er the body of her breathless love, tried every art, vain arts, to change his doom, and vowed, vain vows, to join him in the tomb. What would she do? The fates alike deny the dead to live or fairy forms to die. The fact is so positively proved that no editor or commentator of Shakespeare, present or future, will ever have the folly or impudence to assert that in Shakespeare's time the notion of fairies dying was generally known. Ariosto informs us, in Harrington's translation, Book 10, Section 47, that Either ancient folk believed a lie, or this is true, a fairy cannot die. And again, Book 43, Section 92 I am a fairy, and to make you know, to be a fairy, what it doth import. We cannot die, how old so ere we grow. Of pains and harms of every other sort, we test, only no death we nature owe. Beaumont and Fletcher, in The Faithful Shepherdess, describe A virtuous well, about whose flowery banks, the nimble-footed fairy stands their rounds. By the pale moonshine, dipping oftentimes their stolen children, so to make them free from dying flesh and dull mortality. Puck, alias Robin Goodfellow, is the most active and extraordinary fellow of a fairy that we anywhere meet with, and it is believed we find him nowhere but in our own country, and, peradventure also, only in the south. Spencer, it would seem, is the first that alludes to his name of Puck, Ne let the pook, nor other evil sprite, ne let hobgoblins, names whose sense we see not, fray us with things that be not. In our childhood, says Reginald Scott, our mother's maids have so terrified us with an ogy devil, having horns on his head, fire in his mouth, and a tail, eyes like a basin, fangs like a dog, claws like a bear, a skin like a niger, and a voice roaring like a lion, whereby we start and are afraid when we hear one cry bow. And they have so frayed us with bull-beggars, spirits, witches, urchins, elves, hags, fairies, satyrs, pans, silence, kit with the canstick, tritons, centaurs, dwarfs, giants, imps, culkers, conjurers, nymphs, changeling, incubus, robin goodfellow, the sporn, the mare, the man in the oak, the hellwain, the fire-drape, the buckle, tom Thumb. Hobgoblin, Tom Tumbler, Boneless, and such other bugs that we are afraid of our own shadows. Discovery of Richcraft, London, 1584, 4th tome, page 153. And know you this, by the way, he says, that heretofore Robin Goodfellow and Hobgoblin were as terrible and also as credible to the people as hags and witches be now. And in truth, they that maintain walking spirits have no reason to deny Robin Goodfellow, upon whom there hath gone as many and as credible tales as upon witches, saving that it hath not pleased the translators of the Bible to call spirits by the name of Robin Goodfellow. Page 131 Your grandam's maid, says he, were wont to set a bowl of milk before Incubus and his cousin Robin Goodfellow, for grinding of malt or mustard, and sweeping the house at midnight, 
and you have also heard that he would chafe exceedingly if the maid or good wife of the house, having compassion of his naked state, laid any clothes for him, besides his mess of white bread and milk, which was his standing fee. For in that case he saith, What have we here? Hampton, Hampton, here will I never more tread nor stamp in. Discovery of Witchcraft, page 85 Robin is thus characterized in the Midsummer Night's Dream by a female fairy. Either I mistake your shape and making quite, or else you are that shrewd and knavish sprite. Called Robin Goodfellow, are you not he, that fright the maidens of the villagery? Skim milk and sometimes label in the quern, and bootless make the breathless housewife churn, and sometimes make the drink to bear no barm, mislead night wanderers laughing at their harm. Those that hobgoblin call you and sweet puck, you do their work, and they shall have good luck. To these questions, Robin thus replies. Thou speaks the right, I am that merry wonder of the night. I jest to Oberon, and make him smile, When I a fat and bean-fed horse beguile, Neighing in likeness of a filly foal, And sometimes lurk I in a gossip's bowl, In very likeness of a roasted crab, And, when she drinks, against her lips I bawl, And on her withered dewlap pour the ale, The wisest aunt telling the saddest tale, Sometime for three-foot stole mistaketh me, Then slip I from her bum, down topples she, And Taylor cries, and falls into a cuff, And then the whole choir hold their hips and laugh, And waxen in their mirth, and knees, and swear, A merrier hour was never wasted there. His usual exclamation in this play is, Ho, ho, ho! Ho, ho, ho! Coward, why comest thou not? So in Grimm, the collier of Croydon, Ho, ho, ho! My masters, no good fellowship. Is Robin Goodfellow a bugbear grown, that he is not worthy to be bid sit down? In the song printed by Peck, he concludes every stanza with ho, ho, ho. If that the bowl of curds and cream were not duly set out for Robin Goodfellow, the friar, and Sissy the Darrow maid, why then either the pottage was so burdened to next day in the pot, or the cheeses would not curdle, or the butter would not come, or the ale and the fat never would have good head. But if a peter penny or a household egg were behind, or a patch of tithe and paid, then beware of bullbeggars, spirits, etc. This frolicsome spirit thus describes himself in Johnson's Mask of Love Restored. Robin Goodfellow, he that sweeps the hearth in the house clean, riddles for the country maids, and does all their other drudgery, while they are at hot cockles, one has conversed with your court spirits ere now. Having recounted several ineffectual attempts he had made to gain admittance, he adds, In this despair, when all invention and translation too failed me, I even went back and stuck to this shape you see me in of mine own, with my broom and my cannels, and came on confidently. The mention of his broom reminds us of a passage in another play, Midsummer Night's Dream, where he tells the audience, I am sent with broom before to sweep the dust behind the door. He is likewise one of the Dramatis Personae in the old play of Wily Beguiled, in which he says, 
Tush! Fear not the dodge. I'll rather put on my flashing red nose and my flaming face and come wrapped in a calfskin and cry, Bo, Bo! I'll pay the scholar, I'll warrant thee. Harshnet's Declaration, London, 1604, 4th tone. His character, however, in this piece, is so diabolical and so different from anything one could expect in Robin Goodfellow that it is unworthy of further quotation. He appears likewise in another, entitled Grimm, the Collier of Croydon, in which he enters, in a suit of leather close to his body, his face and hands coloured russet colour, with a flail. He is here, too, in most respects, the same strange and diabolical personage that he is represented in Wily Beguiled, only there is a single passage which reminds us of his old habits. When as I list in this transformed disguise, I'll fright the country people as I pass, and sometimes turn me to some other form, and so delude them with fantastic shows. But woe betide the silly dairy maids, for I shall fleet their cream bowls night by night. In another scene he enters while some of the other characters are at a bowl of cream, upon which he says, I love a mess of cream as well as they. I think it were best I stepped in and made one. Ho, 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 my masters! No good fellowship! Is Robin Goodfellow a bugbear grown, that he is not worthy to be bid sit down? There is, indeed, something characteristic in this passage, but all the rest is totally foreign. Dr. Percy, Bishop of Dromore, has reprinted in his Relics of Ancient English Poetry a very curious and excellent old ballad originally published by Peck, who attributes it, with no similitude, to Ben Jonson, in which Robin Goodfellow relates his exploit with singular humour. To one of these copies, he says, were prefixed two wooden cuts, which seemed to represent the dresses in which his whimsical character was formerly exhibited upon the stage. In this conjecture, however, the learned and ingenious editor was most egregiously mistaken, these cuts being manifestly printed from the identical blocks made use of by Bulwer in his artificial changeling, printed in 1615, the first being intended for one of the black-and-white gallants of Seal Day adorned with the moon, stars, etc., the other a hairy savage. Burton, speaking of fairies, says that a bigger kind there is of them, called with hobgoblins in Robin Goodfellows, that would in those superstitious times grind corn for a mess of milk, cut wood, or do any kind of drudgery work. Afterward, of the demons that mislead men in the night, he says, we commonly call them pucks. Anatomy of Melancholy Cartwright, in the ordinary, introduces moth, repeating this curious charm. St. Francis and St. Benedict blessed this house from wicked white, from the nightmare and the goblin, that is hide good fellow Robin. Keep it from all evil spirits, fairies, weasels, rats, and ferrets, from curfew time to the next prime. Act 3, Scene 1 This puck, or Robin Goodfellow, seems likewise to be the illusory candle-holder, so fatal to travellers, and was more usually called jack-o'-lantern, or will-with-a-wisp, and, as it would seem from a passage elsewhere cited from Scott, kit with the canstick. 
Thus a fairy, in a passage Shakespeare had already quoted, asked Robin, Are you not he, that frights the maiden of the villagery, misleads night-wanderers laughing at their harm? Milton alludes to this deceptive gleam in the following lines. A wandering fire, a compact of unctuous vapour which the night condenses, and the cold inference round, kindled through agitation to a flame, which oft, they say, some evil spirit attends, hovering and blazing with delusive light, misleads the amazed night-wanderer from his way, to bogs and mires, and oft through pond and pool. Paradise Lost, Book Nine He elsewhere calls him the Friar's Lantern, Lalego. This facetious spirit only misleads the benighted traveller, generally an honest farmer in his way from the market in a state of intoxication, for the joke's sake, as one very seldom, if ever, hears any of his deluded followers, who take it to be the torch of hero in some hospitable mansion, affording provision for a man and horse, perishing in these ponds or pools, through which they dance or plunge after him so merrily. There go as many tales, says Reginald Scott, upon Hudgen, in some parts of Germany, as there did in England of Robin Goodfellow. Friar Rush was for all the world such another fellow as this Hudgen, and brought up even in the same school, to wit, in a kitchen, inasmuch as the self-same tale is written of the one as of the other, concerning the scullion, who is said to have been slain, etc., for the reading whereof I refer you to Friar Rush's story, or else to John Weiris, the prestigious demonium. In the old play of Gammer Girton's Needle, printed in 1575, Hodge, describing a great black devil, which had been raised by Dickon, the bedlam, and being asked by Gammer, But Hodge, had he no horns to push? replies, As long as your two arms, saw ye never, Friar Rush, painted on a cloth with a sidelong cow's tail, and crooked cloven feet, and many a hooked nail. For all the world, if I should judge, should reckon him his brother, look even what face Friar Rush had, the devil had such another. The fairies frequented many parts of the bishopric of Durham. There is a hillock, or tumulus, near Bishopton, and a large hill near Billingham, both which used, in former time, to be haunted by fairies. Even Fairy Hill, a well-known stage between Darlington and Durham, is evidently a corruption of Fairy Hill. When seen, by accident or favour, they are described as of the smallest size and uniformly habited in green. They could, however, occasionally assume a different size and appearance, as a woman, who has been admitted into their society, challenged one of the guests, whom she espied in the market selling fairy butter. This freedom was deeply resented, and cost her the eyes she first saw him with. Mr. Brand mentions his having met with the man, who said he had seen one who had seen the fairies. Truth, he adds, is to be come at in most cases. None, he believes, ever came nearer to it in this than he has done. However that may be, the present editor cannot pretend to have been more fortunate. His informant related that an acquaintance in Westmoreland, having a great desire and praying earnestly to see a fairy, was told by a friend, if not a fairy in disguise, 
that on the side of such a hill at such a time of day he should have a sight of one and accordingly at the time and place appointed the hobgoblin in his own words stood before him in the likeness of a green coat lad but in the same instant the spectator's eye glancing vanished into the hill this he said the man told him the streets of newcastle says mr brand were formerly so vulgar tradition has it haunted by a nightly gust which appeared in the shape of a mastiff dog etc and terrified such as were afraid of shadows i have heard he adds when a boy many stories concerning it the no less famous Borgust of durham and the pictree brag have been already alluded to the former beside its many other pranks would sometimes at the dead of night in passing through the different streets set up the most horrid and continuous shrieks to scare the poor girls who might happen to be out of bed the compiler of the present sheets remembers when very young to have heard a respectable old woman then a midwife of stockton relate that when in her youthful days she was a servant at durham being up late one saturday night cleaning the irons in the kitchen she heard these strikes first at a great and then at the less distance till at length the loudest and most horrible that can be conceived just at the kitchen window sent her upstairs she did not know how where she fell into the arms of a fellow-servant who could scarcely prevent her fainting away pioneers or diggers for metal according to lavater do affirm that in many minds there appear strange shapes and spirits who are apparelled like unto other labourers in the pit these wander up and down in caves and underminings and seem to bestir themselves in all kinds of labour as to dig after the vein to carry together ore to put it in baskets and to turn the winding wheel to draw it up when in very deed they do nothing less they very seldom hurt the labourers as they say except they provoked them by laughing and railing at them for then they threw gravel stones at them or hurt them by some other means these are especially haunting in pits where metal most abounds of ghosts etc london fifteen seventy two fourth tome page seventy three this is our great milton's swart fairy of the mine simple foolish men imagine i know not how that there be certain elves or fairies of the earth and tell many strange and marvellous tales of them which they have heard of their grandmothers and mothers how they have appeared unto those of the house have done service have rocked the cradle and which is a sign of good luck do continually tarry in the house of ghosts etc page forty nine mallet though without citing any authority says after all the notion is not everywhere exploded that there are in the bowels of the earth fairies or a kind of dwarfish and tiny beings of human shape and remarkable for their riches their activity and malevolence in many countries of the north the people are still firmly persuaded of their existence in ireland at this day the good folk show the very rocks and hills in which they maintain that there are swarms of these small subterraneous men of the most tiny size but the most delicate figures northern antiquities etc two forty seven there is not a more generally received opinion throughout the principality of wales than that of the existence of fairies amongst the commonalty it is indeed universal and by no means infrequently credited by the second ranks 
fairies are said at a distant period to have frequented Buster's Hill and St. Mary's Island, but their nightly pranks, aerial gambles, and cockle-shell abodes are now quite unknown. Heath's Account of the Islands of Scilly, page 129. Evil spirits, called fairies, are frequently seen in several of the isles of Orkney, dancing and making merry, and sometimes seen in armour. Brand's Description of Orkney, Edinburgh, 1703, page 61. End of section 3. Recording by phone.